Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Power 3.0 podcast, examining authoritarian resurgence and democratic resilience in an era of globalization. Power 3.0 is brought to you by the International Forum for Democratic Studies, the Idea Center of the National Endowment for Democracy. I'm your host, Shanti Kalatal, Senior Director of NED's International Forum for Democratic Studies. And I'm your co-host, Chris Walker, Vice President for Studies and Analysis at the Endowment, recording from our studio in Washington, D.C. Recent international debate has centered on China's largest technology firms, their relationships with Beijing, and the implications of their growing involvement in global markets. While concerns over Huawei's role have dominated the discussion, a growing body of reporting and analysis suggests the broader intersection of China and technology is far more complex and far-reaching. Within China, Chinese firms are developing surveillance systems, facial and voice recognition technology, social credit systems, and advanced censorship capabilities, even as the government aspires to global superpower status in artificial intelligence. All of this is happening in the absence of robust domestic scrutiny by independent civil society, while at the same time, China's Belt and Road Initiative and related Digital Silk Road Project are helping disseminate these capabilities globally. To shed further light on the nature of this increasingly complex web of relationships and to explain the nuances of how China's authorities may be interested in leveraging these new technologies, we're pleased to welcome to the Power 3.0 podcast Samantha Hoffman, a fellow at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, or ASPE, for today's discussion, China's Technology Enhanced Authoritarianism. Thank you for having me. So, Sam, let me kick it off by referring to um, you recently testified alongside Chris before the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence at a hearing on China's digital authoritarianism. So in your testimony, you noted that the Chinese party state is trying to control international discourse on China and that it expects technology to enhance the sophistication of this process. So I was hoping you could go into a bit more detail on this, particularly on the role envisioned for technology by the Chinese party state. Absolutely. Um, So I think it's best to start framing uh, what this means domestically and then look at how that expands outward. Technology is essentially a tool that allows the Chinese Communist Party to enhance its existing methods for controlling and managing society. The objective is to essentially allow technology to be used as a tool that increasingly blurs the line between the party's uh, consensual and coercive forms of control. The party, in order to maintain power, also needs to expand power because the way that it sees security, it's not a concept that ends at China's borders. So it's not a domestic or international security. It's actually inside the party and then everything outside of it. And so as China grows, globally. The party also needs to expand its power to protect it. And so technology is a way of improving uh, the party's ability to, for instance, understand its external environment so that it can shape it. Um, Oftentimes in the debate on Huawei and 5G, for instance, we're narrowly focused on national security threats. But the problems associated with this are a lot broader. Uh, civil liberties is a major issue. And so one thing that the Chinese Communist Party talks about is that it can use data collected from BRI projects, which include things related to 5G and smart cities development, to understand the local environment, to help the businesses directly involved in the projects, but then also to allow the party to understand its political environment and ultimately shape it 
the way people think about China and the Chinese Communist Party in particular. Well, you know, in your commentary just now, it echoes um, a line that you used in your testimony, which I thought was really striking. So let me just read it back to you and get your reaction to this. You said, for the CCP, the border that matters most is not the border between the PRC and the world, but rather the border between the party and everybody else. The more channels that open up between China and the outside world, the more the party has to fill in and ensure those channels are controlled. So can you just talk a little bit about the ways that the party does fill in these these gaps and these openings and why it sees this as imperative? Sure. I'll start with why it sees this as imperative. Um, it has to do with the way that the Chinese Communist Party defines national security, or really better described in the Chinese context as party state security. And it says that at the basis of this concept is political security, which is guaranteed by ideological security and cultural security. And then there are other elements that would be a lot more familiar to us, military security, environmental security. Um, but with political security at the basis of that concept, that means that the party has to prevent threats from emerging in order to protect its ideological space. So domestically, that means not only putting down unrest once it emerges, but actually creating the conditions to disincentivize any problems from ever having the opportunity to arise, whether through consensual means or coercive means where necessary. That extends outward because the party's ideological space doesn't stop at China's borders. And threats to the party politically, domestically, can emerge from the outside. So it's not a concept that stops just because China's territory ends. It continues outward because if protecting the party is, is the objective, then there is no border. And internal, because the party also has to control itself. It has to manage um, uh, how policies are implemented. It has to manage corruption. It has to manage all of these traditional issues if maintaining and expanding power are the objectives. And Sam, you've written that overseas, the CCP doesn't seek to um, exert control through direct coercion, but through cooperative versions of control. I'm wondering if you could just describe a little bit more what you mean by that. Sure. It's a bit of both. Cooperative is mostly focused on shaping discourse, uh, as you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. And discourse has to do with shaping how people engage with China, uh, shaping the channels of communication. If you're a student, how you're engaging with China, how if you're a businessman uh, or woman, how, how you're engaging with, with China. If you are a government official, uh, if you're looking to be elected and you have a large overseas Chinese community in your district, how are you engaging with that community? Are you engaging with a very diverse community that isn't representative of only the party or are you engaging with channels that the party tends to control. It's all of those things combined. There's also coercive elements of this. For instance, I mean, and this is nothing new, the party harasses political opponents overseas. It also is mainly focused on overseas and ethnic Chinese, but it also extends to individuals who are working on issues that are sensitive to the Chinese Communist Party. That's why you see academic self-censorship or self-censorship in think tank environments, because in order to maintain access, you have to conform to what the CCP describes as normal behavior. And, and why, in your view, and maybe this is an obvious question, but why is it necessary, uh, whether in the coercive or in the cooperative categories of 
this manipulation and control for that sort of um, control to be exerted in the first place? What, what exactly are they seeking to sideline from the discussion or prevent from ever being taken up that's so crucial? So if you look at the way the Chinese Communist Party describes its uh, threat perceptions, one of the consistent themes is, is always the idea of, say, a color revolution type event taking place in China. And if an event like that is the type of threat that the Chinese Communist Party perceives, one that's primary political, um, they also see that as something that can emerge from outside of China, whether it's a government or entities that are interfering, that are giving a voice to political opposition to the party, creating an opportunity for individuals inside and outside of China to mobilize around an idea that is different than what the party says is true or right. And that can take place outside of China before it takes place inside of China. And so it needs to control those spaces inside and outside of China in order to prevent that type of threat from emerging. Because if you get to the point that the party has lost political legitimacy or ideological legitimacy, or at least that it can't control that, um, it doesn't matter whether or not a shot is fired. If it's lost that to begin with, then it sees itself as losing um, the ultimate battle. So implicit in what you said is an emphasis on this term discourse. And you've written about the concept of discourse power in the way that uh, the Chinese party state defines it. Can you talk a little bit about why this concept of discourse power is relevant to the global information ecosystem and why would it be applicable to, for instance, international credit rating agencies or international technical standard setting bodies, um, which are all places in which uh, you've said that you know discourse power is trying to manifest itself or in which the CCP wants to manifest discourse power? The idea of discourse power or the right to speak is essentially described by the party as a way of ensuring the effectiveness and power of its speech. In order to have that, the party needs to collect data in order to enhance its ability to influence local environments and places outside of China. It needs to collect data in order to understand normal political and economic risks. And it sees, it sees collection power as the ability to sort of collect information from all areas of the world in real time. And then communication power as something that decides the party's ability to influence. And both of those things are directly related. And data collection supports that process. Um, so data collection comes from smart cities. Data collection comes from places like Confucius Institutes. It comes from, the, the CCP describes collecting information from backdoors and um, also other means um, from infrastructure projects, from things like hotels um, and telecoms companies as well, all as a way of improving this knowledge. And it's not that the data can be effective immediately, but when it technology catches up and predictive capacity in, improves, then it has that data in order to make it usable. Or when it decides that it wants to have a particular set of information or it wants to pull a string, it can do that more easily than if it didn't have this to begin with. Specifically, the party talks about data collection from Belt and Road Initiative projects. And 
this is actually something that it already claims to be doing. It takes data from these projects and sends it back to five major data centers in China and uses that to inform this kind of analysis. So it's not just an idea, it's something that the party claims is already happening. But it's interesting that this idea of discourse is not limited to what we would typically think of discourse as like telling a story or part of, you know, the party stated objective to tell China's story better to the world. But it's really about um, technical standards. It's about actual sort of data collection and the nuts and bolts of communication affecting not just the story that's told, but the technology through which that story flows almost. Exactly. And the CCP is really ahead in trying to set technical standards in uh, international bodies. You know, not only is developing technology locally important to the CCP, but it's also setting standards internationally and also setting norms um, and controlling the rules for engagement in a lot of ways with China. Um, and one way of doing that is being ahead of the United States and other Western liberal democracies in this particular uh, space. An example of what discourse power actually looks like, you can point to the Civil Aviation Administration of China last year, uh, sending a letter to, I believe it was 33 major international carriers. And they said that we need you to change the way that you talk about Taiwan on your airline's website. If you don't do this, then we will accuse you of serious dishonesty for not following through with this particular order. And that dishonesty will be recorded on your airline's credit record. And once that's recorded, then that'll be forwarded to the Chinese credit agencies. And that mark will be there for also other government entities to potentially fine you, for instance. So the Cyberspace Administration of China was specifically listed in uh, a letter to United Airlines. Um, but then other laws that the airlines could have been accused of violating were the surveying and mapping law or advertising law. And by connecting the violation to a credit record, it's essentially enhancing the efficiency of the CCP's existing methods for shaping how entities are willing to behave. And it's worth noting that the airlines weren't told to change a China-specific website. They were told to change their global websites because when they tried to change just or tried to create just a China website to respond to this demand, they were actually told no. And so it's not that companies are not used to being told to talk about Taiwan in a particular way. It's that with these systems using technology to enhance existing forms of control, the all-encompassing nature and the effectiveness is intended to improve. And really what you've described um, just more fundamentally is to get the edge in artificial intelligence, you need to have the data collection and curation capacity, and then you need to be able to test it in order to develop the um, algorithmic edge. And China has, in many ways, an unlimited ability to do this. You described it in the external context through BRI and other initiatives, but within its own borders, as Shanti alluded to at the outset, there really are no checks on the way the authorities gather data and use it. This is a question everywhere today, but for open societies, there's a debate about, or there at least there should be a more vigorous debate about how these sorts of efforts are undertaken. In your view, is there anything that's in view right now that can 
slow down or otherwise stop the trajectory of the way in which the Chinese authorities are pursuing this data collection and artificial intelligence enterprise that's underway. Internationally, it's that we need to be having a conversation on privacy, and it needs to take these issues into consideration. It's not just about the data we're sharing with companies, it's also how that data can be exploited by other actors and and what that means in a broader security context outside of our sort of traditional narrow framing of national security risks, not just espionage, civil liberties. Domestically, the party is engaged in a multi-staged, multi-decade project to use technology to enhance control. So that started in the early 1990s with e-governance projects and led to where we're at today with the development of smart cities across China. You see it in its most coercive and visible forms in uh, Xinjiang, but it's also not started there and it's not limited to that region. This is taking place across China. But the party is also relying on the ability of government agencies to share information. It's relying on efficiency and it's not there yet. So it's not that the Chinese Communist Party already has this all-encompassing form of surveillance that is 100% effective. But I think also, if you trace back and look at where it started talking about these concepts, none of the technology existed. I doubt most government offices had more than a fax machine. <laughs> so it's it's not that it can't achieve its objectives. It's just that it's going to be it's going to take a number of years, and there will be bumps along the way. But the complexity doesn't mean a lack of strategy. And your observation earlier about the cooperative versions of control uh, reminded me of a of a fascinating conversation we recently had on the podcast with Citizen Lab's Ron Debert, who in a January 2019 Journal of Democracy article sketched out a number of reasons why social media presents many problems. And I see some connected themes here in the sense that we all, irrespective of where we are, really enjoy the benefits of the convenience of the new technology. And it seems that in the case of the Chinese authorities, they've also been very adept at using the benefits and convenience of the technology as a way to fuse their ambitions of control to the convenience. And I'm wondering if you'd just share your reflections on that idea. Yep. Ideally, the Chinese Communist Party achieves control through convenience. And that's the social credit system, and that smart cities also have those elements. And I think sometimes this is misunderstood um, as if the more cooperative, um, consensual forms of control are distinct from the coercive ones, but actually they're completely interlinked. And it's always been that way conceptually uh, for the Chinese Communist Party, but technology is a tool to make that more possible. Smart cities, for instance, help to uh, solve problems related to environmental pollution, food and health safety. If you think back to the 2000s, the ch- uh, China had a number of serious public health crises. The milk powder scandal, SARS. You also had natural disaster, the Sichuan earthquake in, in 2008. And so those are all things that smart cities technology and the social credit system are directed at also improving. But there's a key difference. The party frames these issues under a concept that the party calls social management. And social management is ultimately about power and protecting the party's power, preferably preemptively. So a system like social credit, for instance, and the technologies that support it and this entire ecosystem, really, of control 
is also meant to replace the need for rule of law or effective civil society. And, and that's the key difference in China. But I think also globally, um, these are issues that we need to be thinking about. I was looking at a case uh, prior to our, our testimony where Turkey's leading mobile provider signed an agreement with Huawei on uh, 5G and smart cities. No, I think that's just on paper for now. But imagine if that actually uh, materializes. There are, according to Human Rights Watch, over 10,000 Uyghur refugees in Turkey. So if the party can also extend its surveillance overseas or pull the strings when it decides it wants to by providing something that offers convenience and improves the development of another country, then it's also expanding its power in a way that isn't visibly coercive. Well, just to touch on what you mentioned about smart city projects, I saw you were recently involved in a comprehensive mapping project with the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, um, where you and your co-authors essentially mapped around 75 smart city projects. And I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about what you found in the course of that project and whether there are any key conclusions that, that arose from looking at all so many of those projects. Yes, at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, we recently launched Mapping China's Tech Giants, and it's a website and report. And the website maps the global expansion of 11 Chinese tech companies, Huawei, ZTE, biotech companies, um, BGI, and, and others. And we essentially just mapped where it has research cooperations, uh, where agreements with smart cities, as you mentioned, uh, have been made. And it's actually, um, we aren't stopping there. We are adding, um, we're continuing to add more uh, data points. Um, so I know there's already more smart cities that we, we're adding in the next uh, couple of weeks. And then next year, we're going to release a second phase, adding more, more companies. And I think it's a great tool for researchers and journalists to, um, to see where these cooperations exist and look into them and, and try to understand them a little bit more. Because right now, I think there is very little understanding of what is taking place and what we've what we've mapped out. I think one of the misperceptions around Chinese assistance for smart city development is that it's only taking place on a sort of a bilateral basis between authoritarian regimes and China, where it seems from the reporting that it's actually happening in a variety of political settings, including democracies. Yeah, there are smart cities projects in places like Duisburg, Germany, in addition to projects such as one that was reported on uh, earlier this year in Venezuela. I think oftentimes when we're framing the issue of the export of China's surveillance technologies in particular, often people focus on that technology being exported to other regimes that will use it uh, coercively. But what's missed is that for the CCP, the cooperation and the coercion go hand in hand. They can't be separated. And I don't think that liberal democracy or not, we can turn off those functions if that's how it was designed. And you said a short while ago that China, through its engagement, will seek to sideline civil society and rule of law, in essence. Um, they try to do that at home. And I think in this era of globalization, it's been hard for many audiences around the world where China is engaging to see how it could be the case that China, through its exertion of influence beyond its national borders, would even attempt to do something similar. So I'm just wondering to kind of recap, if you could say a word about you know, how countries and societies that are engaging 
with China commercially or in other ways should reframe their thinking about the challenges posed to independent institutions within their open societies. And you just a moment ago alluded to the fact that it can be liberal democracies with long track records in, say, Scandinavia, but it can also be um, countries whose uh, institutional roots may not be as deep and as, as durable. Um, what sort of kind of reframing of uh, understanding do we need to undergo in order to put this challenge into proper perspective? I think the main thing is really we need to have a serious conversation about privacy. In China, you know, the the CCP has written a number of draft regulations on, on privacy protection, but also the party says that privacy stops where the party's power begins. And it says that by the way that it defines the law. The law is there to enhance the party's power ultimately. And if that's the case, then there is no privacy protection uh, when the party decides to insert itself. That extends outward because if, for instance, you are a political opponent of the CCP living in Germany where there's smart cities projects or elsewhere, the party would then have another avenue for attempting to interfere with that individual. But it's not limited to just individuals. It's also a, I think, I think oftentimes when, when you say that and people think, oh, well, I'm not going to be affected. Um, it's not going to affect me. But then it's a bit of a slippery slope, isn't it? I think one of the things that's come out in, in some of the research that we've done is that the, you know, the issues that have customarily been seen as uh, off-limits from the CCP's point of view, Taiwan, Tibet, Tiananmen, um, has actually grown quite a bit. And what's striking is if you look at the way in which uh, investment agreements have been reached in places like Kenya or big technology deals in places like Ecuador or similar sorts of deals with satellite uh, communications technology in places like Argentina, the common pattern is that there's virtually no meaningful public discussion around the establishment of these agreements. And it's usually far after the fact where civil society or policy community voices in these settings will say, this doesn't look quite right, or it doesn't feel quite right, or we didn't really understand because it wasn't given much sunlight at the outset. And so is it your sense that the scope of um, subject matter that is off limits has already grown in this way? I think it has, but then the correction to that is to improve the way that we frame these issues. Um, you know, to understand what the CCP is doing, you have to understand how it frames the issues of power and security and global governance. And that would create a better understanding of how these particular projects, before their agreements are even made, could potentially have unintended consequences. I think often we might get caught up in the way the CCP defines its core interests, uh, Taiwan, South China Sea. But if you go back to the definition of state security, long before Xi Jinping, clearly after Tiananmen, it starts to include the CCP's concept of cultural security, which is basically the CCP defines what Chinese culture is, not the Chinese people, not China, but it's the CCP's version of, of Chinese culture. And so it has already expanded that into the way, for instance, researchers ask questions about China. 
if you look at a lot of research on China, it's the kinds of questions people are asking can be very narrow. Um, and the way at least that we approach the research can be can be framed in a very narrow way. And that's advantageous to the CCP. I mean, somehow it's convinced governments around the world to separate uh, trade relations from political relations for a very long time, as if those two things can be managed somehow separately. But the party itself doesn't doesn't separate those things domestically. So why would it do that? In international relations, uh, so yes, it's it's a incremental process. It's not there's not always a smoking gun evidence um, because this is um, shaping discourse, shaping the way people think and engage with the party and the party's definition of what China is. So before we wrap up our conversation, I'd like to conclude with our final segment called "What We're Reading," where we discuss what's at the top of our respective reading lists and what we might recommend to our listeners. So Sam, do you want to start us off? Sure. So I've just started in the last uh, week reading The Age of Surveillance Capitalism by Shosana uh, Zuboff. And it's uh, really a fantastic read so far, so I'm looking forward to finishing it. And then as a longer read, a paper released earlier this month by Human Rights Watch, uh, Algorithms of Repression by Maya Wong and her team. It's a fantastic read, reverse engineering a policing app that was used, that, that is used in uh, Xinjiang to control an entire population and it shows both the limits and trajectory of this of this technology I think and for my part um, I've gone back to look at Richard McGregor's the party the secret world of China's communist rulers and this book was published about a decade ago and I think in the intervening years the world has come to see the impact of the party in ways that McGregor uh, really deftly described at that time think, among other things, the, um, the description of China Inc. and the fusion of commerce and politics that we've just been discussing here was one of his uh, excellent insights. I'd note that he emphasized um, the party's conscious retreat from the private lives of the Chinese people. But I think as uh, Sam Hoffman and others are writing now, uh, that may be bending in another direction and might be cause for uh, experts on trying to take a fresh look at just how technology is playing a role at reinsinuating itself into uh, Chinese life more more directly. And for me, in line with the 30th anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacre, I'm reading 2014's The People's Republic of Amnesia, Tiananmen Revisited by Louisa Lim, who's a scholar and co-host of the terrific Little Red podcast on all things China. Uh, in the book, Lim not only reveals new details about what happened in 1989, but she also grapples with the legacy of an event that the CCP, as she puts it, has neither forgotten nor is at peace with. She also says in a recent Guardian op-ed that she co-authored with Ilaria Maria Sala that China has systematically erased the evidence and memory of this violent suppression using its increasingly high-tech apparatus of censorship and control, which seems particularly relevant to our discussion today. And I'd like to take this opportunity to thank Sam Hoffman again for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's all for today's episode of the Power 3.0 podcast. For more on the topic we discussed today, we recommend reading Sam Hoffman's May 2019 testimony before the U.S. House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. You can also download more of her publications and other projects she's contributed to on the website of the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. For further analysis of the themes we discussed today and will be examining in future podcast episodes, visit our blog, Power 3.0, Understanding Modern Authoritarian Influence. We also invite you to join the conversation with us on Facebook and Twitter, where you can find us using the handle at ThinkDemocracy. 
Additional resources are available on the NED website at www.ned.org ideas. If you've enjoyed today's show, please rate us on iTunes, Google Play, or whichever podcast app you use. Special thanks to our podcast production team at the International Forum, producer Jessica Ludwig, and our editing and sound engineer, Rachelle Faust. I'm Chris Walker with Shanti Kalatho and Sam Hoffman. We hope you enjoyed this discussion on China's technology-enhanced authoritarianism and invite you to tune in again for future Power 3.0 podcasts.